in temperate climes like the UK, carbon sequestration, 50% of it happens in the soil of forest and wooded areas. The trees are only the other 50%. So the more forest that we have, the more carbon sequestration that we enable in our built environment. Great, I'm sitting here with Martin, and rather than me giving an incorrect introduction to who you are, Martin, how about you tell people who you are, please? Thanks a lot, Josh. Uh, Good to be with you. So, um, Martin Prince-Parrot, I'm the uh, Development Director for Suburban Workshop. Um, I guess a little bit about my background. Um, I'm a developer um, at the moment, but I started my life as an architect, so... I've been in industry for about 10 years. Um, uh, a decent proportion of that was as, a, as an architect uh, working um, probably based out of Birmingham, but a lot of my portfolio is in London um, and working across all sorts of building types, um, single family homes, apartments, um, towers, um, uh, educational buildings, uh, a ballet, um, uh, retail offices, the, the lot I've done it. Um, my sins, I spent a really interesting stint at uh, Gensler, which is obviously, as you know, Josh, is a, a the largest design firm in the world, um, full of really incredible people, um, really, really progressive thinking. Um, and it was while I was there that, that my interest and passion for healthy cities really bloomed. And what I realized was that I um, I effectively didn't understand why our cities weren't better places. Um, and the answer I touched upon or came upon was um, the key to having better places is to have better clients. So it was that realization that led me to think, why don't I move further upstream in the value chain? Um, become a developer and understand precisely what's going into these appraisals. Um, that's resulting in in such such poorly conceived places. Um, so I've been a developer for a few years now. Um, I got an answer to that question. Uh, the answer is virtually nothing is going into the appraisals <laughs> that uh, <laughs> pertain to design quality or place or health and well-being. Um, and with Suburban Workshop, I'm seeking to I'm seeking to change that in a really meaningful way. Um, and it's good to be here and hopefully we've touched on some of those subjects in our chat. Awesome. Thanks for that introduction, Martin. So um, we'd always like to kick off with question one of four, which is what's the best health-focused project you've seen or you've worked on? So we could be talking about an urban design change, uh, something around community cohesion, or is actually a scheme of perhaps as the, the uh, ballet school or site that you worked <laughs> on. Very interesting. But yeah, keen to know, what would you say is the best one you've worked on that you would point someone else to with great pride or excitement? Um, I'm going to cheat. Um because I'll probably mention uh, one I've worked on uh, and then also one that inspires me and is a, is a great sort of totem of, of an approach I admire. So the first I've worked on is probably, uh, I spent almost two years of my career working on um, uh, a little project known as London City Island, uh, which is all the way out in East India, if you know it. 
Um, I was working on phase two uh, as a as a junior architect. Um, and it was while working on that project, I had the immense privilege of of working as part of the Shell and Core team on the English National Ballet. Um, and it was Glenn Howells who who were the architects on that. Um, I learned a great deal. I probably say the it wasn't, which is one reasons why I'll give you two examples. The great thing about that project was it was about the spirit and the poetry of ballet. And it was also about um, creating a jewel in this place. So um, ballerinas, for the most part, are top athletes. If you've ever met one or seen seen them work, um, they're top athletes. And the English National Ballet School is also where these athletes are training. So the emphasis on having um, MEP, lots of natural daylight, lots of space, having floor compositions, which protected the feet and ankles of, of the ballet dancers, both in practice and on stage, um, was crucial. And I'd probably say it was a masterclass in synthesizing poetry, place, um, the individual needs of a specific group of people, um, and then just good old-fashioned, proper good uh, architectural detailing um, and technology. Um, I'm immensely proud to have been able to play a role in that project, um, and I think that it will... I mean, it's won a few awards since, which I'm pleased about, I think it, it should go on to serve its its occupiers um, for as long as as long as they need or desire it to. So I'm proud of that one. I'd probably say my which is a bit a little, little bit left wing project, which I'm I look to for inspiration um, consistently is the Highline, which has spawned lots of um, really worthy um, really worthy progeny across the world. Um, but the Highline, if anyone doesn't know is the re repurposing of, uh, I believe it's the L um, train line. So it's a disused elevated train line, which runs through a section of Manhattan, New York. Um, and a very small community group got together with a few founders. Um, and they they basically uh, somehow bought, and now I'm in development, and the, the story of the Highline seems more insane. Um, they sort of somehow bought this disused railway, um, raised money using through the group called Friends of the Highline, um, raised money and managed to develop a section of it and created a park at high level. So, I mean, for me, there are just so many things in that. You've got community involvement, you've got heritage asset protection, you've got um, biodiversity in cities, you've got the creation of green space and the opportunity for people to just walk, take in the city. Um, you've got the creation of sections along the High Line for cultural events to take place. Um, and then if you want to get into the economics, you've got the very real fact that um good design good place um the high line the values on either side for land on either side of the high line started to not compete but they started to approach the same levels of the land values if you're adjacent to central park and that's i think um such a robust answer to the idea of what's you know what does what does design add you know, to the to the development process. What does it add? It looks nice, but what's its real value? I think anyone who owned land on either side of the High Line will um, will probably quite enthusiastically tell you, um, probably in dollars and cents, what the value of the High Line is to them. So, 
um that one i think is is fantastic and um i think the ballet is 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 lovely in its in its own way that's awesome thank you for that Nick Tyler, who's uh, a long-term advisor to Centric, and he's a member of the council, someone we've spoken mm. to before on this channel, uh, he he really focuses on dance as an engineer and as a civil engineer. And his view is that a dancer should be able to dance through the city from an ergonomics point of view. And so much of his focus is on how uh, the, the impact of our muscular skeletal system i want to say i've got the word horribly wrong there on concrete and asphalt mm -hmm. and how actually we should have materiality more akin to places like the the floors and and uh, in dance halls and ballet schools so just a little insight there something that's always romantic we always assume that we have to walk through the city with pain on concrete actually why why shouldn't we be dancing well, through the isn't city that, isn't that fascinating because um, you can argue that's literally been the purpose of Nike's existence for the longest yeah. time. If you think, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I'm a bit of a Japanophile or Nipponophile. Um, apologies to proper Nipponophiles. Um, the idea that uh, traditional Japanese shoes um, uh, were, you know, pieces of timber um, elevated, uh, you know, elevated above, you know, all of the muck at the time um, during medieval Japan. But um, they're not unlike the hard version of slippers. Um, and in the simplest terms, uh, slippers and the traditional Japanese shoes, the name alludes me at the moment, are basically sections of floor strapped to your feet, um, which is fascinating. And you could argue that Nike has effectively been a, been trying to, and Adidas since with Ultra Boost technology, um, have been effectively allowing you to have sections of the kind of floor you would want to walk on barefoot, but attached to your feet. And that's what's allowing you to move through the burnt environment. So I think, yeah, I think it's uh, Nick is Nick is is bang on. Um, that probably is true and that's what we're trying to do with air bubbles and you know ultra boost soles and things like that we're trying to create uh, the sort of surface we'd actually want to walk on love it love it and so from from the beauty of movement and the subtlety of our ankles and the walls of our feet to something the complete opposite and the second question i do like to ask is what code of policy or practice do you want to see changed so we always said that this could be about how local authorities uh, review our planning applications including other stakeholders such as gps um wh what are you sort of focusing on when it comes to the question of urban health with your experience as a designer your experience as a developer and looking at the system and going you know what these people over here this is our great opportunity for change as we go forward to reduce health inequities and prepare for the disruptions that climate change will bring so um I'd probably say the biggest one has to be uh, the tax environment around retrofit, um, which just isn't really fit for us. So for for the uninitiated, um, the luckily uninitiated, it's um, in very simple terms as a developer, it's, it's more cost effective and tax efficient for you to um, knock something down and build something new of almost exactly the same size and proportions to the tune of about 20% um, than it is to reuse a building. You can't zero rate 
refurbishment works. It, you just you you can't you're not allowed. So what you have is although you know everything that came out of COP is quite clear that um, uh, we're starting to take it more seriously. A little bit late, but we're starting to take it more seriously. Um, but the reality is, eighty percent of the buildings that we'll have in twenty fifty are already built. We basically need to make virtually all of them across the entire planet um, zero net zero carbon in operation. Um, so, if every single building which was created between now and twenty fifty was zero carbon, it still wouldn't even begin to touch the sides of what we need to do to to achieve our objectives from a from a carbon perspective. The answer is we have to deal with the existing buildings that we have and. As a developer, you know, I've been looking at sites, I've been looking at projects, and um, I mean, there are challenges around construction costs um, and land values, but I mean, uh, if you can find the right deal, you can find the right deal. But the fact that I look at a scheme, which which may be, there's one down the road from me, you know, beautiful grade two listed um, uh, building, um, or pair of buildings, and I'd want to convert them. And it would be a challenge, but I'm, I'm up for the challenge. Um, that's one of the benefits of being an architect. Um, however, it just, it didn't stack up for other reasons, but it really wasn't helped by the fact that it was just more expensive to do that. You know, I'm simultaneously looking at um, sort of semi-rural sites, um, and that process is a lot more straightforward. And I think... If you're going to have, I mean, dealing with retrofit is is challenging anyway, but to have that and then on top of it have effectively a disincentive from a tax perspective is really, I mean, we may as well give up now. I don't believe in giving up, but unless we can convincingly tackle the question of what do we do with all of the other buildings that we have in terms of homes, you're looking at something in the order of 20 to 25 million homes that we need to retrofit by 2030, realistically. If we don't have something in place to deal with that or encourage it, um, we're, we're going to be in trouble. And it's sad because if you think about the opportunities around retrofit, which are the fact that it could create over 100,000 jobs, save £7 billion in um, energy costs nationally and annually um, and reduce carbon by about 20%, um, annually um the challenge is massive but if you don't have a tax environment which which encourages innovation and encourages people to take risks um you're just going to stunt the growth the only way we deal with this challenge is really um uh a a a, a sort of sort of darpa free market approach which is create all the incentives that government can because it can't do it centralized create all the incentives that government can and try and unleash the the innovation creativity you know schutzpah and and energy of of the private sector to to help the public sector to 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 deal with deal with this retrofit and the tax environment is probably the single biggest way of doing that and for clarity by uh, clarity by the tax environment you don't mean someone's uh, income to tax and the relationship there you very much do mean the 20 percent of vat precisely yeah 20 percent of vat which you aren't able to remove from works pertaining to refurbishment 
So as you said before, much easier to knock down a building with all the embodied carbon associated to that if someone is dealing purely by the numbers rather than mm -hmm. go, well, how do I adapt to this? How do I use less resources, less materials mm -hmm. um, and encourage to do that often ends up on a cash basis becoming more expensive. So a little bit maddening. Uh, is. Yep. Can I just also say it, it compounds issues around, it compounds issues that a lot of people who are really passionate about our heritage assets also have i've worked on you know heritage buildings before and they've just fallen into disrepair and the reason they've fallen into disrepair is um they're challenging enough to deal with because they have their quirks i mean you're dealing with you know 100 year old um or north of 100 year old buildings but you've got that and then you've just got the fact that it's 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 just so expensive but guess what happens over time they get more expensive to repair. So the problem compounds. So, I mean, it may, you know, maybe the government takes a, a uh, maybe a, a narrower view on it. And maybe it says if the building is listed, then the works can be zero rated from a VAT perspective. Then maybe that could be, maybe that could be the beginning of something that could help us protect our our built heritage. But if you've, if it, if you've, if you've got a, a, a listed building, it's too much, hassle for for an uninitiated or or an informed person to deal with um it's not brought to market uh, in a way or at a value that reflects the difficulty it is to do the works then it just it just becomes more of an issue later and it costs one even more money to 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 try and bring it back into use and that's just a crying shame it just doesn't need to happen well, that's a great insight and hopefully anyone listening uh, can take it forward if they're ever having a conversation about this and how we make our built environment more sustainable. There's a simple win to start suggesting to their councillors or MPs or if they ever get a, a podium to stand on, just say, why don't we do this very simple thing if you truly mean uh, building back better or levelling up or whatever nonsense slogan they want to come out with. Give us some uh, impactful policy change that can make a difference tomorrow so yeah. let's let's move on to um not that that's not inspiring i think that's insightful uh it's insightful in a tough area but i always like to ask who are the three people that you admire in your professional peer network uh so they don't have to be your friends but they can be people within the industry that you're aware of or are interested by um you know they could be great newsletter you write um or just you know a a twitter face that you think Go and listen to these people. They're really interesting in how they're thinking about cities, about people, about uh, uh, health and our futures. So um, this will sound um, incredibly uh, snivelly, but you, Josh, you and Centric Lab. <laughs> that's so cringe. Uh, are, 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 are people that, that I've i've admired and has in, and, and have inspired me for a very long time so the fact that i get to sit here talking to you about the thing that we care a great deal about is feels like a great privilege to me so thank you for that um honestly the work that you have done to try and bring logic and rationality and make the economic emotional humanitarian ethical case for healthy cities i think is incredible and i just wish that there were more organizations like centric lab because you you try and push things forward in um such an important way um and you're carrying a lot of weight alone so what i can do to support you um i'll do and um um 
Yeah, thanks for all you've done so far, is what I'd say. Uh, I am because we are. And that's, that's yeah. the only thing. Yeah, we, we, we're all in this together. So, <laughs> but thank you for that. If anyone knows me, they'll know I'm blushing red right now. Uh, so, <laughs> so on, on, on to uh, personal number two, number, number two and three. Please. So number two is um, someone I feel incredibly privileged to um, to know, uh, which is uh, Alexandra Note, uh, who is um, placemaking and investment director of PFP Capital. Um, for a few years I've known her and beforehand she's been absolutely tireless, which is unusual for someone who who sits in that location of um, the value chain um, as, you know, as being a, a fund director, um, absolutely tireless in advocating for better places, absolutely tireless in advocating for more joined up working between organisations, um, tireless in... Um, uh, helping make the economic case uh, for doing good in the built environment, um, and if the if there's anything else that she does which competes with her enthusiasm and consistency in this area, is probably the grace of which she deals with um, everybody who has the privilege of crossing her path. So if you if you are able to reach out to her, um, I'm sure you'll receive a warm reception um, and. Um, uh, and if you are perhaps shy, um, you can probably learn a great deal about the way she operates and the things she talks about, because she is, she's a bit like me in the sense that she's, she's, she's able to, um, wear two hats or, or impose, um, several lenses on the problem facing us. And she, when she talks about solutions, she's talking about them both in her capacity as a, as a fiduciary for, um, for an investment fund, um, but also as a, as a concerned citizen and lover of places. I think we need, much like Centric, we need more people like her who are able to say it makes economic sense, it makes social sense, it makes um, uh, ecological sense. Why aren't we doing more of this? And she could do with some more support. So um, she'd be my number two. That's great. Alex is great. And it's interesting and worth noting about PFB Capital. It's not some evil money corporation sitting in the city of London. It is an investment fund that's wholly owned by a housing association, places for people. So mm -hmm. their job is to provide uh, socially responsible places uh, for those who aren't able to access homes on the traditional sort of private market. And so her job is always to guide the ethics of uh, fund management through the lens of what does it mean for the people that we actually provide homes to? And I think it's an important caveat because as soon as we start thinking like, oh, well, yeah, here, here's, here's a fund in the city doing good, good, mm. good for them. I think it's actually is very much uh, focus on actually being responsible in that market. So I think good good kudos to her there. Uh, thank you for that, Martin. I'll include her details in the show notes. And uh, who, who would be your number three? You're possibly a number four, because number one doesn't count. You, you, you can't pick me. <laughs> so maybe another one will come off the top of your head. But yeah, who, who would so, be Okay, so, so my number three is, isn't someone I've had the, um, the benefit of uh, meeting personally, but it's a a chap called Ben Cross, and he is, I believe he's a development manager at uh, General Projects, who are a, a London-based developer who are who describe themselves as developing the next generation of um, real estate, particularly commercial real estate, and 
I completely agree. I think they are. And not just in what they're developing, but how they're doing it. They are um, really, really serious about ESG. Um, They measure it. They talk about it. They practice it. That's incredibly inspiring um, for me as a a developer of an ESG-led firm. Um, to seeing how they do how they do that um, and the advantages that that it's it's yielding for their business. So um, he's great. He's also um, I'm not sure if it's if it's there if it's if they've got a very good social media manager, but um, their posts and the presentation is uh, you know nothing short of inspiring. I mean, I would expect really good presentation from a, a fellow architect turned developer, and he doesn't disappoint in that respect. So I'd say my number three is Ben Cross from General Projects. Very cool. Very cool. Did you have a number four that would come to mind, someone else straight off the top? Uh, My number four is a chap called um, Phil Sturgeon, um, and he's at Phil Sturgeon, and his handle is Tree Sturgeon, which is uh, quite clever uh, as a handle, I must say. And he works for a charity called Growing the Trees. And um, I came across him um, the other week um, because he did a post which basically said, do you have land? If you have land, do you want someone to come and plant um, a load of trees for free? To which I said, "Uh, yes, please. As soon as I grab some land, please come and plant trees there. Um, And they're doing it for free. And um, I think him being prepared to do that um, and the charity existing to rewild, um, rewild and create these, you know, carbon sucking um, organisms um, and oxygen generating organisms is is absolutely fantastic. So I think if we could give him um, some some spotlight or some attention, I think that'd be fantastic. And I, I probably also it's worth me saying um, this his call particularly appealed to me because I wrote my postgraduate thesis on um, our relationship with timber and forests as a nation, what it means for for the built environment. Um, Predominantly because if you look back in our history, timber has played a massive role in in what we've managed to achieve as a very small island nation. Um, We couldn't have um, dominated the seas without knowing how to engineer wood. Um, It's one of the things that we have in, in common with the Japanese um and when um i think it was in during the medieval period um tree cover uh on the island of great britain was 90% it's now something more like 10 10% we've lost we've lost that many trees in in a few hundred years which is quite astounding really um, and we've replaced it with the green belt, which I'm not sure anyone still understands what the purpose of the green belt is. But at least if we had more wooded areas, we would have more carbon sequestration, more places to walk and roam. Um, and for anyone who who isn't aware, in temperate climes like the UK, carbon sequestration, 50% of it happens in the soil of forest and wooded areas. The trees are only the other 50%. So the more forest that we have, the more carbon sequestration that we enable in our built environment or even in our rural environment. But if we could do that and support Phil, um, I think we'd be doing uh, doing ourselves a favour. 
Great. That is a great inspirational person. And I'm glad I pushed you for an extra person there. So uh, on to our last question, Martin. Um, this is a, a bigger one. This doesn't have to be about your job. Uh, but I always think it's good in asking people where they find hope. How do they see hope? Because it's not easy out there. It never has been, to be fair. Um, it has been a constant question of struggle, no matter who you are. And so we always turn to what we feel is hope and that gives us the energy from within so that we can give out. So it could be a place of worship. Um, it could be um, a local leader that you see. It could be just a book or a speech uh, that you turn to. Uh, wh where do you find hope and how would you share this to other people listening? So um, I would probably say I find hope in... Um, and hope in the circumstances that we've found ourselves in. So I know I'll have to explain that one. Um, we are, particularly with climate change, um, facing an existential threat to us as a species that we've never faced before, short of um, much larger pandemics. Um, it's It's probably it's probably the biggest thing that we've that we've had to face as a species and that we've realized that we've had to face together as a species and as a planet um and i never thought i would see the point in time where you would have global governments all meet and discuss something other than arms or conflict um, and to discuss in very serious terms how we as a species, as a collection of peoples and places and nations can solve this threat to us. Um, that I think that's actually incredibly inspiring. And I think if you were to look at the arc of history, um, you would see um, that it's quite rare to have hostilities, geographic or, or territorial or otherwise, placed aside for, for, for um, governments and peoples to come together and start to talk about us as one group, not as a series of tribes who may or may not want um, natural resources in, in each or other's territories, things like that, going beyond that. Because that's the, I think that's the key to us really dealing with a lot of challenges that we face as a as a species is realizing that we are one people and that the world is not a house with lots of rooms and it's just one big room and if someone makes a mess in one corner of the room it affects everybody else in the room the borders that we've drawn on maps don't exist in in real life at least most of them don't some of them do which is sad um, but most of them don't and so to see us coming together to look at this challenge affecting us I think is incredibly aspiring and then to look be behind that and see and see capital realizing the risks insurance realizing the risks policymakers realizing the risks developers realizing the risk consultants realizing the risks kids as young as five realizing the risks and people as old as 95 realizing the risks I think, it's scary, but at the same time, it's incredibly profound that we can have, especially in this time of division, alignment on on something. We don't. We're not all agreed on how we should deal with it, 
that we're getting to a place where we all acknowledge that it's something that we all need to do together. And that's, that's, that's really special, I think. And that gives me hope. Love it. That's great. Martin, thank you very much for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for having me, Josh. This show and the work of the Urban Health Council wouldn't have been possible without the support of funders and contributors. We'd like to thank the businesses Lendlease, Matter Architecture, Iseni Projects, MAP, the Human Nature Partnership, Town, as well as the National Lottery Community Fund, whose contribution has allowed us to delve deeper into community health and begin creating healing futures. We'd also like to thank the following generous individuals. Nate Tyler, Robert Stark, Carl McFadden, Claire Delmar, Jake Robinson, Matthew Pembry, David Smith, Lucy Stewart, Marketa Nosilova, Dominic Campbell, Magali Thompson, James Pellet, and those who wish to remain anonymous, who have all become supporters of the independent science being produced at Central Fab and the Urban Health Council. If this is your first time listening to the show, please head over to urbanhealthcouncil.com to check out more. And if you can, please consider becoming a supporter. Thanks. Bye.